Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. We are entering the home stretch of the term where the court is likely to start handing down opinions nearly every week until they're done. And as a reminder, this is also the final stretch of our audience survey. So if you haven't filled it out yet, we would appreciate if you would do that. This past week, the court began hearing oral arguments in its final sitting of the term. There are three cases to keep an eye out that the court will hear oral arguments in next week. They're Kennedy v. Bremerton School District, Biden v. Texas, and Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta. We'll talk more about each of these cases once the court issues its decisions, but essentially, Kennedy is an important free speech slash religious liberty case. Biden v. Texas deals with whether the Biden administration must maintain the Remain in Mexico policy, and Castro Huerta is the latest in a series of cases dealing with the fallout from the court's controversial McGirt decision, which found that the eastern half of Oklahoma was in fact tribal land. So stay tuned. We have six opinions this week, so let's dive in. First up is the City of Austin versus Reagan National Advertising. This was a five to four decision by Justice Sotomayor, joined by Roberts, Breyer, Kagan, and Kavanaugh. And the court held that a regulation that prohibits businesses from putting up signs advertising goods and services located off-premises did not necessarily violate the First Amendment. The court held that this law was content neutral, even though officials had to read the sign to determine if it violated the law, because the regulation did not target the idea or message expressed by the sign. Still, the court said a facially neutral regulation might be unconstitutional if it is motivated by a discriminatory motive, so the court directed the Fifth Circuit to consider that issue on remand. Justice Breyer concurred to say that the clear lines of First Amendment jurisprudence, for example, the one prohibiting content-based discrimination, should be replaced with rules of thumb that let judges balance whether a regulation works harm to First Amendment interests and is disproportionate in light of relevant regulatory objections. In a nutshell, that is the Breyer we know and love, always happy to give more power to judges and less to the people. Justice Alito concurred in part and dissented in part to say that, in his view, it was not necessarily true that all distinctions between on- and off-premises signs are on safe First Amendment grounds. And Justice Thomas, joined by Justices Gorsuch and Barrett, dissented on the basis that the majority replaced a clear rule for content-based restrictions with one that is incoherent and malleable. Next up is Thompson v. Clark. This was a 6-3 decision by Justice Kagan, where the court held that in order to win on a Fourth Amendment malicious prosecution claim under Section 1983, which is the statute that allows someone to sue a state official for violating their constitutional rights, a plaintiff has to show only that the prosecution ended without a conviction. The plaintiff does not have to prove his innocence. In this case, police officers filed charges against Mr. Thompson for obstructing an investigation and resisting arrest. The prosecutor later dismissed those charges without any explanation, which meant that Thompson had no ability to show his innocence. That meant that under the precedent of the circuit in which he lived, he could not sue the officers for malicious prosecution because he couldn't show that he was, quote, actually innocent. The Supreme Court, analogizing to the elements of the tort of malicious prosecution, 
held that an affirmative indication of innocence isn't necessary. It's sufficient to show that the case was dismissed. Justice Alito, joined by Justices Thomas and Gorsuch, dissented on the grounds that the majority created what he called, quote, a chimera of constitutional tort by stitching together elements from very different claims. Something worth pointing out here, I don't think Justice Alito gets enough credit for his writing, uh, but he is the king of the metaphor. Remember the line from his dissent in Bostock where he called Justice Gorsuch's opinion a pirate ship flying under a textualist flag? That was excellent stuff, and I think <laughs> more folks would do well to credit him for it. Agreed. Next up is Beschler versus IRS. This is a very technical tax case in which Justice Barrett wrote for a unanimous court and interpreted a statute that sets a 30-day deadline for appealing certain kinds of IRS determinations and gives the tax court jurisdiction over those appeals. The court held that the deadline is independent of the grant of jurisdiction, which means that if you miss the deadline to appeal, the tax court still has jurisdiction over the case and can grant you an extension. I know that the facts of the case are dry. They are. But I love cases like this. When people ask, what do judges do? This is what they do 99% of the time. They go through arcane texts of laws like grammarians to find out how the law really operates. Next up is Kassir v. Thyssen Bornemisa Collection Foundation. This was a unanimous decision by Justice Kagan where the court held that when a foreign state or an instrumentality of a foreign state can be sued under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, courts should apply the same choice of law rules that would apply to private parties. Here, the issue involved who was the rightful owner of Camille Pizarro's impressionist painting Rue Saint-Honoré in the afternoon effect of rain. Lily Kassir had inherited the painting, but had it confiscated by the Nazis at the outbreak of World War II. It was later declared that she was the rightful owner, but she did not discover the painting's whereabouts until an entity controlled by the Kingdom of Spain, the Thyssen Bornemisa Collection Foundation, published its holdings, which, guess what, included the painting. While lower courts held that the foundation could be sued in U.S. courts, an important issue remained about whose property law should govern the suit, which necessarily meant deciding which choice of law rules should apply. The court held that the standard choice of rule laws that would apply to private parties should also apply in this context, too. It said that in a property law dispute like this one, the standard rule is the forum states here. California's choice of law rules should apply. Next up was Brown versus Davenport. This was a six to three decision by Justice Gorsuch in which the court held that when a state court has ruled on the merits of a prisoner's claim that he suffered a violation of his constitutional rights during his trial, a federal court cannot then grant habeas corpus relief unless it applies two tests, one set by a Supreme Court precedent called Brecht and another by a law called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. Justice Kagan, joined by Justices Breyer and Sotomayor, dissented on the ground that the Brecht test subsumes the statutory one, so this just makes more work for courts but doesn't change any results. And finally, we have U.S. v. Vallejo Madero. This was an 8-to-1 decision by Justice Kavanaugh where the court held that the Constitution does not require Congress to give supplemental security income to residents of Puerto Rico. A federal statute makes those benefits available only to residents of the 50 states and the District of Columbia. 
The court held that Congress may distinguish between territories and states in tax and benefits programs as long as it has a rational basis for doing so. And in Puerto Rico's case, the fact that most residents are exempt from most federal taxes supplies a rational basis for likewise distinguishing them from residents of the states for purposes of the Supplemental Security Income Benefits Program. Justice Sotomayor dissented, claiming that there is no rational basis for Congress to treat needy citizens living anywhere in the United States so differently from others. Next up is our interview this week with First Liberty's Kelly Shackelford. We're pleased to be joined today by Kelly Shackelford, who serves as the president, CEO, and chief counsel of First Liberty Institute. Kelly, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be on. Well, thank you so much uh, for being here today. Now, before we talk specifically about First Liberty and some of your current work there, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your background. What made you want to be a lawyer, Kelly? You know, that's a good question. I mean, I guess when I was in high school, I realized my gifts were in analytical thinking and speaking. And to be honest, I thought, well, I either need to be a pastor or a lawyer. And people said, that's like a God or Satan choice, isn't it, <laughs> to be a pastor or a lawyer? And... Uh, I realized that with my DNA, I'd probably do better at dispensing justice rather than mercy, and so I'd probably make a better lawyer. And uh, went to law school, uh, uh, you know, got out and uh, clerked for a federal judge, which of course is a great experience, and you kind of can get a lot of great job offers from that. And I had all those offers from the big law firms, and I just thought, you know, I just don't feel like that's what I'm called to do. And I remember thinking, well, what, what do you want to do? And I thought, well, I want to use like my legal skills because I think my law school has, has shown me I should do that. But I want to do, I want to minister too. I want to be in ministry in some way. I'd, I'd love to help pastors, churches, religious freedoms, our founding principles, and I'd love to go to seminary. And I, and I laughed because there was no job like that at the time, 32 years ago. And two weeks later, two guys called me, partners in major national law firms, never met these guys in my life. And they said, look, um, we started donating our time for religious freedom. We're getting so many calls now, it's hurting our ability to make a living. So we were wondering, would you be willing to come on, do legal cases, help pastors, churches, religious freedoms, and our founding principles, and you can even go to seminary part-time? And uh, that was 32 years ago. And 32 years later, First Liberty is the, the largest legal group in the country that all we do is religious freedom. Kind of one of those crazy stories. That's fantastic. How did they get your uh, name and information, Kelly? You know, they heard that I had clerked in the summer uh, for a nonprofit um, that worked on religious liberty stuff, and but that was at the I, I did that in D.C. and these attorneys with these national law firms were in Dallas, which is where I was, and uh, and they just heard about it, and so it was really uh, an amazing thing for me because I kind of got my dream job from the very beginning. I mean, not exactly dream salary, uh, you know, starting out as their, their first question to me was, how much are you making as a clerk? <laughs> and uh, that was my starting salary. But, uh, but a dream job as far as getting to work on things you really had a passion for. Excellent. Now, you mentioned you clerked for a, a judge, Kelly. Who did you clerk for? Judge Fitzwater, um, for one of the most respected uh, district court judges in the country. He was actually, I think he's been beaten now, but at the time... He was the youngest judge ever appointed to the federal bench oh, at wow. 33, um, appointed by Ronald Reagan. And uh, Judge Fitzwater is just an icon um, for ethics and being a lawyer, how you treat people. Um, just just a, a great, great guy and uh, uh, just so well respected. So to get to, to clerk under him, 
was an honor. In fact, I, I, it's kind of crazy because it kind of came full circle. Uh, I had a, one of our attorneys that worked for me. In fact, a guy who uh, said that he, he, one of the reasons he got into law is his mother was in, in a lawsuit uh, when he was young, and we came and defended her. And that caused him to kind of want to be a lawyer. He ended up being a great lawyer, ended up coming to work for us later, and now he's a federal judge. That's Judge Kazmarek. <laughs> uh, and what's interesting about that is the guy who mentored him as a new federal judge was uh, senior status judge Fitzwater. So I don't know. There was something beautiful about the circle coming to completion. Uh, the guy I started to clerk with uh, uh, when he was a very young judge, but a, a great one, and now in his senior status He's clerking uh, somebody that, uh, by, by our work at First Liberty, was inspired to become a lawyer and is now a federal judge. That's fantastic. Now, I have to ask, Kelly, what in particular kind of piqued your interest in religious liberty issues? What made you want to focus on those particular issues? Um, I've just always had a passion for that. Um, you know, to be honest, I understand so much more the importance of it than I did then. But as a person of faith myself, um, it was always something important to me. And as I was in law school, I would read a lot of cases that I thought were just wrong, uh, were clearly not what the founders uh, had written in the Constitution. And of course, you know, back in the, the 60s and 70s, a lot of damage was done in religious freedom from uh, uh, more activist judges uh, on the Supreme Court and other courts. And so it just was always an issue of passion for me. Um, and there's nothing quite like representing somebody who has been really either threatened or punished because of their faith. Um, to be able to free them to live out their faith in the way they feel led is, uh, I don't know, there, there's not a lot more more uh, satisfying than to be able to help people in that way. That's fantastic. And I think that segues into one of the bigger picture questions I was hoping we could talk about a little bit today. What do you think about the current state of religious liberty and religious liberty laws and lawsuits in the country? Uh, where do you think we stand uh, with that today? Well, there's a lot more hostility to religion. There's a lot more lawsuits than there used to be. Um, I, I was just going through our numbers not too long ago. I think 12 years ago, we had 48 cases. Uh, last year, we had over 700. Uh, so it's just the, the attacks, the situations we're having to deal with are really increasing. I think as the culture sort of moves away from religion, which is happening somewhat in general, there's a lack of appreciation for religious freedom that leads to these types of things. Um, and, and I guess that's one of the basics. Uh, when I speak around the country, one of the first things I try to talk about is why everybody should deeply care about religious freedom. It's, it's our first freedom for a reason. Even if you're not a person of faith at all, um, the founders understood that if you lose this freedom, you'll lose all your freedoms. And I could spend a lot of time talking about why that is and and looking at examples in other countries, like when you see Marxism come in, the first thing that has to be removed is are the religious entities. You know, they murder the priests or the, or the pastors or remove the synagogues. Um, why is that? Well, religious freedom is, is the key cog for freedom because the one thing that a totalitarian regime can never allow are these citizens who hold an allegiance to one higher than the government. So whenever that type of uh, really attack on freedom begins to come into place, the first flashpoint, the battle will always be religious freedom. And if you lose there, you'll, you'll lose all your other freedoms as well. So I think people have lost that appreciation. They don't understand it. 
And, uh, you know, maybe another simple way is, you know what, when freedom of conscience is gone, you pretty much lost your freedom. So people even who are atheists and, and don't believe in any sort of religion at all, they have a big stake in religious freedom. And, uh, in fact, I see that all the time. We have people come up to me from other countries, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, who lived in communist regimes, who are actually donating to our work and involved, who tell me they're not people of faith. Uh, they just saw it happen in their country. They took down their religious symbols, and you know, a month later, they all lost their political freedoms. And so uh, it's one of those core freedoms that I think a lot of people don't understand and are, and are taken for granted because they, they think they're not religious. Um, it, it really is, is, is the first freedom for a reason. So where do you think we're headed, Kelly? What do you think will be the biggest religious liberty issues in the next five to ten years, maybe? You know, we're kind of at a, I don't know how to, how to describe this, but we're kind of at the beginning of a renaissance. Um, I've been fighting for 32 years in this arena. And if you'd have asked me four or five years ago, you know, there, there's a major, there was a major case under both religion clauses that had caused, I think, tremendous damage to religious freedom. The Lemon case uh, under the Establishment Clause and the Smith case in the Free Exercise Clause. And if you'd asked me four or five years ago, can you get rid of those? I would have said not in my lifetime, but we can chip away at them. Um, because of the uh, new judges who are moving us back to originalism, um, that's all changing. I mean, we're in the process of imploding these bad precedents. And uh, I'll start with uh, uh, Establishment Clause, Lemon. Uh, the Bladensburg Cross case at the Supreme Court a uh, very important case where the Supreme Court, for the first time, really said, we're not following Lemon. And it's, it's a horrible precedent, Lemon was. It's caused all kinds of damage and created all kinds of hostility to religion. And I think it's, it's gone. I mean, the lower court decisions are saying, quote, Lemon is dead. And this is a major shift under Establishment Clause jurisprudence. And then I think the same thing is beginning to happen under the Free Exercise Clause. So I really think we're just at the beginning of a real expansion of religious freedom, uh, more than, uh, you know, sometimes I'll be in audiences, I'll say, I believe every American is about to have more religious freedom than they've ever had in their lifetime. And I think we're just at the beginning of that process, because we're going back to what the founders wrote, what the founders intended, and the originalist uh, uh, approach, and not sort of the more, how do I feel, you know, the living, breathing Constitution approach that's really mucked up the law for quite a while, but I think is being cleaned up slowly but surely right now. Well, that's excellent news. And I think the Lemon case is the one that Justice Scalia referred to at some point as a ghoul. <laughs> that that's was hard to drive That's exactly right. What, what, and I'll just give people a summary. I mean, the Establishment Clause says uh, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. What, what did the founders mean? They didn't want there to be an established national church that everybody had to support because that would take away from freedom. But Back in the 1971, uh, the court said, no, no, it means a lot more than that. And they started this process of, you know, it means separation of church and state. It means offended observers can bring lawsuits. So, I mean, you can't bring lawsuits because you're offended in anything. But our whole lives, we've seen the one area. If you're offended by religion, you can bring a lawsuit. And it's led to all these attacks on, you know, nativity scenes and, and veterans memorials and you know, all these monuments and different things. And I think the founders would have been just appalled by this. Uh, they didn't want a sort of hostility to religion. They just wanted the government to, to let people be free and to not establish a national church. 
And so that case, that Establishment Clause case, in it's the official name of the Bladensburg Cross case is the American Legion versus the American Humanist Association. That case was a really significant shift because the presumption was almost of hostility to religion, and now the presumption is that religious displays are presumptively constitutional unless you, you know, have some special facts that show that there's something else going on. And that's appropriate, you know. I mean, we're a country with a religious people. We're going to have religious displays, religious monuments mixed in with the secular monuments. Uh, and the idea that we had to go sniff around like some sort of religious KGB and knock down all the religious elements is, is really uh, goes totally against what the founders wanted and what our Constitution really is trying to do. Now, I want to talk a little bit about First Liberty and some of the current cases you're working on. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about First uh, Liberty, Kelly, how big you are, where you're located, and uh, what what kind of cases? I know you focus on religious liberty cases, uh, but what tell us about the organization. Yeah, First Liberty is the, the largest nonprofit legal group in the country that all we do is religious freedom. And our focus is solely religious freedom in the United States. And we represented all faiths from... You know, obviously Catholic, Protestant, uh, we have a number of Jewish synagogue cases around the country, uh, to even groups like the Falun Gong and uh, Native American Indian religions, etc. So uh, the whole point is, um, if you don't defend religious freedom for one group, you're not going to get it for the other groups. And so uh, it's, it's a privilege to be able to, to do those cases. Um, we uh, have offices in uh, sort of the Dallas, Texas area and Washington, D.C., um, so those are our two main offices. We have attorneys scattered around uh, the country as well. And really, one of the things that's unique about us is we have a model of how we do our cases that's very different uh, from other groups around the country. And that is your typical nonprofit legal group, will their model is sort of raise money, use the money to hire attorneys, put the attorneys in an office in D.C. or L.A. or New York, and then fly them around and cover the cases. That's not our model. Our model is there's all these people of faith who went to law school because they wanted to do what was right. They wanted to ride in on the white horse and sort of save the day. And 30 years later, these are the best litigators at the best law firms in the country. And they've done honorable work, but they've never gotten to do a case for their faith or their country. And so we go up to those people and we say, look, if we bring a team around you, like on our staff or top lawyers from all the top law schools, and all they do is religious freedom, uh, and we have a media department, everything else, that sort of provide everything an attorney would need. If we give it, you everything you need, are you willing to give your time? And they're like, man, I've been waiting 35 years. You know, sign me up. And you can imagine that first time in their life, all their talent, all their gifts, all their training, everything they learned is for the first time lined up with their faith, and their love for their country. They've never felt that before. And so once they do one of these, it's kind of unfair, but we know we got them for the rest of their lives as one of our volunteer attorneys. And then they're the big partners. They give uh, uh, you know permission for the younger attorneys. They get a taste of what it's like. So all of our teams on all of our cases is sort of a mix between our people on staff who are top of their class and, and totally focused on religious freedom and these great litigators at the law firms who live in the communities where these law these lawsuits are being filed, who know the judges, who so it's a very unique model, and it blesses those attorneys who give their time, it blesses the clients who get teams, powerful teams they could never afford, and it really blesses everybody because we get these great precedents. Um, 
we've now 23 years in a row, uh, every year, won over 90% of our cases. And it, it results in great protection for freedom. And these are things that couldn't happen because most people can never afford this type of legal representation. And so it's, it's kind of fun to watch how it really does bless everybody who's involved in the process. Excellent, excellent. Now, I want to talk specifically about two cases that I know you and First Liberty have been very heavily involved in litigating. And the first one I want to talk about is Carson v. Macon. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that case, First Liberty's role in it, and what you think the outcome uh, will be? Yeah, it's an unusual case for us because usually it's us and a major law firm and the attorneys on there working together. In this case, it's us and another group, the Institute for Justice, that have worked together Um uh, the, the basics of the case is in the state of Maine, um, they don't have, if you, what, we, what we would normally call a school district, they don't have a public school in most of those school districts. So for you know, over 100 years, they've allowed uh, people to pick the parents. You, you, look, you take your tax money and you pick what school, you private or public. Uh, it can even be an out-of-state school that has curriculum that you use there. Um, and we will use the school funding that we were going to send if you were in a public school, we will, we will send to that school to pay for uh, your education. So it's a basic, just a school choice program. But uh, about you know, 30 years ago, um, they got the idea that, um, that they wanted to change that. And what they, what they were, was they were dealing from a false understanding of the Establishment Clause. They thought, if we don't exclude all the religious schools, that's going to be a violation of the Establishment Clause to allow parents to pick uh, where their taxpayer money goes, and that could be a religious school. That turns out to be wrong, because there's been cases since then, the Zellman case, the Espinoza case, that said, no, no, we don't... Discrimination against religion is not what the Constitution is about. If parents can pick a non-religious school, they can pick a religious school. It's a matter of them picking what's best for their kids. Um, and so, but they've kept this. And so it creates real hardships for people. Like our clients, um, I'm thinking of one of the clients, the Nelsons. I mean, these are farmers. Uh, he has to do a snow plow in the winter for extra income. I mean, they, they're just getting by. And yet they couldn't pick the school for their child that, that was the best school. And I don't just mean best because it was religious. I mean the best academic school. Um, and the only reason was because they were being discriminated against. Uh, you could pick any school you wanted. You could pick the most expensive schools in the state, the all-girls schools. Um, you could pick anything unless they were religious. And that's just clear discrimination. And so we, we filed that lawsuit. We got to the Supreme Court. The argument was December 8th. I think the argument went very well. I thought Justice Alito's questions were really powerful, which is he pointed out that a CRT school was okay under this approach. A white supremacist school was okay under their law. All, anything's okay uh, except for a religious school. And it pointed out the clear discrimination in what they're doing and that that's not uh, consistent with our law. So we're hopeful that by it, end of June or before that we're going to get a decision that sort of ends this whole discrimination that has gone on for so many years uh, in school choice programs where you think you can exclude the religious schools or the religious choices from parents. Uh, really, it's just treat everybody the same. And I think that'll really result in the best competition 
everybody will rise and we'll end up with better schooling, better choices, and uh, parents being able to do what they do best for their children, which is make those decisions. Well, I'm certainly hopeful for a great outcome in that case, too. And you and Institute for Justice did fantastic uh, work on it. Now, next, I wanted to talk about another case that I know many of us have been watching very closely for a long time, the Coach Kennedy case. Could you tell us about that, Kelly? That's a big case. Um, Coach Kennedy was a Marine for um, almost 20 years, got out, um, watched this movie. He was going to be a coach, and the night before he watched this movie called Facing the Giants, which is about sort of Christians and coaching, and it just convicted him. And he made a pledge to God. He said, you know, after every game, when we go to the center of the field and we slap everybody on the behind and say good game, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go to a knee and thank God for the privilege of coaching these young men. And so that's what Coach Kennedy did for seven years. Um, Now, in that process, sometimes the kids would say, hey, can we come out there and pray? And he would say, it's a free country. You can do whatever you want. And so they started to gather around him. Eventually, the, the school said, hey, you, you can't, you know, you need to make sure you're not, you know, uh, having the kids with you. And he said, oh, that's no problem. So, uh, but then the school came back and said, in fact, we don't want you praying. And they said, in fact, if you go to a knee again, we're going to fire you. And Coach Kennedy, number one, was in the Marines. He fought for our freedoms. But number two, he's like, man, I really don't want to be away from these kids. I love being able to build into them and encourage them and coach them. But what kind of example am I if I turn you know, and run as soon as uh, I come under attack? And so he went to a knee and they fired him. And this went, unfortunately for Coach Kennedy, he lives in the Ninth Circuit, not exactly friendly on these issues. And the Ninth Circuit said uh, coaches are not allowed to pray in public if anyone can see them. Uh, that somehow if a spectator is up in the stands and sees a coach go into a knee, uh, he'll somehow think the government or the school district is promoting prayer and that'll pressure them to be in prayer as well and that would violate the Establishment Clause. I mean, it's just a really crazy you know, set of uh, uh, conclusions <laughs> that they're jumping to and it's not the law. So we went to the Supreme Court and the first time we got up to the Supreme Court, they said, you know, we're not going to take this yet. There's some more facts we want developed. And they sent it back down. But the four uh, more conservative justices, uh, in, a, in a statement by Justice Alito, also said, we find it very troubling, this decision below, what it would mean. Because essentially what they said in the opinion is that when you're, quote, on, you know, at work for the government, you can't do anything that anybody can tell is religious. I mean, so that would not only affect coaches, it would affect teachers, it would affect everybody who works for the government. Uh, it would mean, you know, if you wear a cross on your neck and you work for the federal government, I guess, you know, now you can be fired for that. So it was a really expansive and dangerous reading of taking away the rights of coaches, teachers, and really everybody who works for the government. So we went back down, uh, got the facts established, came back up. The Ninth Circuit doubled down in their, I think, their bad opinion and their hostility to religion. We had 11 dissenters uh, at the Ninth Circuit. And uh, Supreme Court uh, now has decided to take the case. It'll be argued probably in April. Uh, Again, I mentioned earlier our method of working with volunteer attorneys who are the best of the best. So our lead counsel uh, at the Supreme Court, the guy will be arguing it. 
is Paul Clement. Paul and I have been friends for years, and he's, he's just one of the very best, no doubt, and he has a real passion for this case. Um, so we're getting ready for that now. It'll be in April, but I think it's, it's important on a lot of levels. Um, one of the things that people don't realize, you know, there's never been a Supreme Court case ever on the rights of teachers or coaches, people at school, with regard to what their religious freedom is. There's just, there's no guidelines. Now, we kind of know what we think that is, but this will be the first time where we sort of begin to lay some of this out. Uh, And then again, I think this will have a big impact on sort of the rights of free speech and freedom of religion of people who work from the government. Uh, This idea that whenever you work for the government, everything you say is government speech and therefore they strip away your freedoms uh, those types of elements are involved in this case as well. So, I, And it's also one that everybody understands. Um, everybody gets this case, the coach going to a knee. And that's why it's gotten so much, much publicity over the past six and a half years. You know, uh, We're going to have major coaches from around the country filing briefs. Uh, coach Bowden, before he died, uh, came and supported Coach Kennedy. So it's one of those interesting cases that the regular public can understand and that is probably going to be a landmark case in a number of ways. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I know we're all very excited that the court granted cert, and we'll all be watching very closely to see what the court does. Now, other than these two cases, Kelly, quickly, what are some of the other notable cases or issues that First Liberty is working on right now? You know, there's a lot of them. Um, I mean, we we get a lot of cases, but I'd say to me the biggest one um, out of the rest of the, of the cases is the Navy SEALs case. Um, this is uh, a case, and a lot of people have been seeing what's been going on in our military with people who have religious objections uh, to uh, taking the vaccine and then what the, the military has been doing to these people. It's really been disgraceful. Um, I mean, there's people who are one year from their pension vesting that are being thrown out. Uh, they're being told that they're not going to get an honorable discharge. Uh, I mean, their families are being terrorized. And this is not like a few people. This is like tens of thousands of people. And so we couldn't represent all the people who were calling us because we would have to have 20,000 lawsuits. But we picked these 35 Navy SEALs. Uh, we thought that'd be a great place to start. And these, these are heroes. These are the best of the best. These are people who, th- 350 years of uh, combined uh, combat service uh, and you know, they, they did everything right. There's a right under the law, federal law, it's very specific, for people in the military to ask for a religious accommodation. That's what they did. Now, whatever conclusion they end up coming to on them, that's not where we're at yet. They punished them for asking for the accommodation. You can't do that. You, you, you can't have the federal government punishing people for asking for an accommodation under the law, which they're entitled to ask for. Uh, and the types of things they've been doing to these guys, they've been telling them that they're taking away their trident, which is their, their ability to be a Navy SEAL. They've been telling them that one of them, he has PTSD, actually a few of them do, but this one, they've blocked his medical facility. They called the medical facility and said, don't give this guy treatment. I mean, this is just unconscionable stuff in what they're doing, and they need to pay a price for it. Now, we filed, we immediately asked for a TRO, an immediate injunction, or actually a PI, preliminary injunction, uh, to stop all this and to protect these guys. Um, we, we unearthed some pretty significant evidence uh, in that hearing, 
that the process they're going to, there, there are some internal documents that show what they're doing is a sham. They're not really considering anybody's religious accommodation request as the law requires. And the result of that was we had a federal judge issue a pretty strong opinion saying this was pure theater, that what they were doing was a violation of the law, and he issued a preliminary injunction. We certified that because we realized when the evidence came out, it was evidence from the Navy. So this wasn't just for the Navy SEALs. This was for everybody within the Navy. So we have now moved to certify this as a class to protect everyone in the Navy. Uh, So this is a case that I think is really important. Um, It affects a lot of people. It affects our military. It's one to really, you know, I think be watching. They have appealed the original injunction to the Federal Court of Appeals, the Fifth Circuit. That'll be another stage coming up as well. But this is one of the ones I think most watched in the country right now. Excellent. Excellent. Now, I have two final questions for you, Kelly. The first, I know you argued in 1997 a case before the Supreme Court, the Arkansas Educational Television Commission v. Forbes. And I was hoping you could quickly tell us a little bit about that case and what that experience uh, was like. Well, certainly arguing, being the, at the Supreme Court for the first time is, uh, is surreal. Um, you know, not everybody is Paul Clement and has had over 100 arguments uh, at the Supreme Court. Um, and uh, it's a great experience, but it's one that very few people get. Uh, by the way, the case was the uh, public television station in Arkansas held a debate for Congress. And there were three candidates. One of the candidates um, was a third-party candidate, and his name was uh, Ralph Forbes. Uh, Ralph had won 40% of the statewide vote in the Republican primary just two years earlier for another seat. So this is not some candidate you'd never heard of. But the the, the government television station decided that they would include the Republican and the Democrat, but not the third-party candidate. And so um, uh, it was a really important free speech case, and uh, it was one of those that when I got it, and I got it at the Court of Appeals on its way to the Supreme Court. So, I mean, we didn't even get to argue it at the Court of Appeals. It was already gone on its way to the Supreme Court, and Ralph asked if, uh, if I would argue the case. And uh, it was, you know, it was one of those uphill battles because uh, in the first moots I did, practicing and getting ready at some of the universities, a lot of the professors said, you know, you could lose this 9-0. Because the court certainly doesn't want to get involved in, you know, editorial TV decisions. Um, and uh, it's one of those uh, uh, deals where uh, it was kind of ironic because during the oral argument, the microphones went out while I was speaking, not while my opponent was speaking. And so all the media just loved the irony of this. You know, they took the microphone away from our client <laughs> And now the government microphones are shutting off. And they, they have since now come up with a new system to have bi- backup. Uh, but they actually had to get the FBI to go back to help reconstruct the transcript because of the lack of the mics and the recording uh, equipment not being able to get the sound. So it was unusual on a lot of levels. Um, my conservative friends sort of uh, made fun of me because I won all the liberals on the court. So they began to question my credentials. <laughs> Um, but I could not get the conservatives. I knew that's what I had to do. I had to get Scalia. And essentially what I argued was, I said, look, um, if the government is going to pick one candidate over another, it can change election results. So in order for it to do that and be compliant with the First Amendment, 
it really should have a pre-established and objective criteria. It can't just arbitrarily say, oh, I like this person and not this one. And that's what I push for. And, um, and so uh, I, I didn't win the day. I won a number of, of the, ju- uh, the more liberal justices who said this was viewpoint discrimination because this guy had some very you know, uh, strong and conservative views. But uh, I couldn't get my conservative friends on that one, so I lost it 6-3. On a technical issue, they kind of avoided my argument because I think they knew it was a good argument. So they, they used a technical issue to say that I wasn't in a forum, and therefore uh, they threw the case out. So it, it's one of those things that they fought over for months. I argued it, I think, October, and it came out really late. And it's because I think there was clearly some jostling going, going around, and they decided to just sort of get rid of it more on a technicality and not deal with it uh, substantively. Hmm. Very interesting. Now, the final question we ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? You know, you know that's an, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, most likely, and I, and I kind of got no excuse for this because I was with Justice Scalia numerous times and I didn't do this, but it would probably be to sit down and have a long conversation with Justice Scalia over the Smith decision. And, of course, the Smith decision is the decision that he authored um, that really did um, somewhat neuter the free exercise clause uh, to a large extent. Um, For those of us who do religious freedom, most free exercise claims we just have to bring as free speech claims and say it's religious speech. And that's really a shame because the founders clearly meant free exercise to be protected. Uh, And I'd love to have an extended conversation with him about uh, why he really did that. I mean, I understand some of the reasons, but uh, uh, that would probably be my first choice. And plus, Justice Scalia was always so fun. Uh, he was just all—he was never lacking in energy and uh, and life. And so, a conversation with Justice Scalia is always something you remember. Absolutely. Well, Kelly, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being here today, and we'd love to have you on again in the future. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's been a joy. GC, I've noticed a lot of posts on Twitter lately about Supreme Court justices with April birthdays, so I thought that could be the topic of today's trivia. Are you ready to learn about uh, some April birthday justices? Well, I'm afraid you've got me at a double disadvantage here because I have to confess, uh, personal trivia about justices like that is not my strong suit, and I am no longer on Twitter, so I have not seen any of these posts, but I'll give it a good go. Well, I'll start you out with a relatively easy one uh, about a sitting Supreme Court justice. This current justice was born on April 1st, 1950 in Trenton, New Jersey, and before being appointed to the court, he served in a variety of roles in the Department of Justice and as a judge on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Who is this justice? Ah, the New Jersey gives it away. That is uh, Justice Samuel Alito. That's right. And even though he has an April 1st birthday... Uh, this question is no April Fool's joke, so well done. <laughs> that was uh, that was the GC joke, Zach. <laughs> well, now I I thought it was good, GC. So I don't know about that. <laughs> well, mine are always good. <laughs> no, just kidding, just kidding. Uh, you did well, GC. I'm impressed. You're off to a good start here. Uh, I'll start you out with another easy one. Uh, next up, this current justice was born in New York City on April 28th, 1960. She served in a variety of governmental and academic positions before she was nominated to the bench. Name this justice. 
That would be Elena Kagan. That's exactly right, GC. Two for two. And after uh, all the protesting at the beginning, you are off to a stellar start. <laughs> all right. I'm going to ratchet up the heat a little bit uh, since you've done so well in the first two, mm. GC. Now, before taking the SCOTUS bench, this justice served in the administration of President William McKinley, and he served as a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. One of his sons also co-founded an eponymous law firm uh, that now bears his name as well. Oh, um, boy, I'm not sure. I remember from your interview with Judge Nalbandian, you talked about how Taft has a, f- has a well-known law firm named after him in, what is it, Cincinnati? And he did serve in McKinley's administration. So Taft? GC, that is an excellent guess. It's an excellent guess, but it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but your thought process was on the spot. Because Taft did serve on the Sixth Circuit, and he also served in the administration of William McKinley. And you're exactly right. There is a prominent Cincinnati law firm that bears the Taft name, uh, as Judge Nalbandian mentioned. Uh, But William Howard Taft actually has a September birthday. The justice I was thinking of was William Rufus Day. Uh, William Ah, Day. Of course. William well, Rufus he's... Day. I, I, I know who William Rufus Day is. Oh, yes, well, now you do. Indeed. We're now all friends. Uh, well, he served as Secretary of State under President McKinley. He was appointed to the Sixth Circuit by President McKinley, and he was ultimately elevated to the Supreme Court by Teddy Roosevelt. He's, and he served on the court from 1903 to 1922. And one of his sons co-founded Jones Day. So ah. even... Even if you don't know uh, Justice Day, I'm sure you've heard of uh, the very famous, very large law firm, Jones Day. Well, fascinating bit of history, Zach. You got me. Well, it was a good guess. You're doing well so far, GC. Okay. All right. I'll take it. All right. I'll go back. I'll give you a little bit of an easier one again. Uh, This justice was born on April 17th, 1741, and he served on the court until his death in 1811. And just to throw out an extra clue for you, GC... Uh, he was the only justice to have ever been impeached. Ah, Samuel Chase. I, I never would have known the birthday stuff, but that, that is a big giveaway. You're on the money, Samuel Chase. <laughs> All right, I've got a final one for you here. Uh, this justice, he served two different stints on the court, uh, which were interrupted by a run for president. So who is this justice who was born on April 11th, 1862? A f- Frequent feature in uh, trivia because of his very interesting life and career, that would be Charles Evans Hughes. You've got it. He served as an associate justice from 1910 to 1916 and as chief justice from 1930 to 1941, and he narrowly lost the 1916 presidential race to Woodrow Wilson. Uh, So you're right. Very interesting career and a correct trivia answer from you, GC. (laughs) All right. I've got a bonus question for you. Bonus question. Uh, Can you name any other justices who might have April birthdays? No. (laughs) Well, that's okay. There are at least two more uh, that I'm familiar with. Uh, One is Willis Van Devanter, one of the famous four horsemen. And then Frank Murphy uh, was another justice with an April birthday. Okay. But overall, well done today. Thank you, Zach. Well, that's all we have for today. So thanks to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. 
And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. And don't forget to take our listener survey because this will be your last week to do so. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.